Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words we've just heard. When the prophet Samuel was a boy serving in the temple, he heard God calling his name and he said to God, Speak, for your servant is listening. Father, we want to make Samuel's words our own this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. How clean are your feet? Be honest with yourself. When was the last time your feet made contact with some soap suds? 
It seems to me that the people of Good Shepherd Anglican Church are a hygienic group, so I feel confident about the cleanliness of your feet. But even so, I wouldn't want to get too close to them. Biologists tell us that the soles of our feet contain more sweat glands than our armpits. And the 250,000 sweat glands in our feet produce about half a pint of perspiration every day. Half a pint! Those facts should surely persuade us that other people's feet are best avoided. And yet, according to today's Bible passage, we can't avoid other people's feet if we want to follow Jesus. As we'll see, there's a lot of symbolism in this passage, a lot of picture language, which means when I say we can't avoid other people's feet if we want to follow Jesus, I'm not speaking super literally. But if the visual aid for serving one another is foot washing, that shows us we should serve one another even when doing so is objectively unpleasant. So that summary statement is still meaningful, even if it's not taken super literally. We can't avoid other people's feet if we want to follow Jesus. For the rest of the sermon, we're going to look at two unavoidable washings. The first is the washing we must receive. The washing we must receive. Please look down with me to verse 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying that Peter won't share in Jesus' eternal inheritance unless he lets Jesus wash him. And what was true for Peter is true for us as well. There's a washing we must receive. In that verse I've just read, verse 8, Jesus uses washing as a symbol, a visual representation of something else. And to help us understand what washing represents, we need to go back to the start of the passage. John tells us in verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus' hour is code for his future death on the cross. In John chapter 8, for example, Jesus says some challenging things to the religious establishment that could easily have led to his arrest at that time. But John says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Then in chapter 12, Jesus has just been speaking about his fast approaching death. And he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this that I have come to this hour. So Jesus' hour is code for his death. And according to verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had now come. He knows he's about to die. And that timing is significant. Jesus chooses to wash dirty feet on the night before his death to give the disciples a picture of the washing from sin that he'll provide through his death on the following day. That's why Jesus says in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. They won't understand the symbolic meaning of the foot washing 
until after the cross has happened. Only then, once they've understood that Jesus' death cleanses people from sin, will they grasp the full meaning of the foot washing. They'll look back and say to themselves, now we get it. Jesus washed the dirt from our feet as a picture of the far greater washing he was about to perform through his death. So when Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's not saying, look, Peter, I can't take your stinky feet anymore unless you let me clean them. I'm through with you. Instead, he's speaking symbolically. He's saying, Peter, the hour has come for me to die. And unless you let me wash you through my death, you won't be able to stay in my presence. The student pastor I had when I was at college tells the story of the time he returned home from a music festival. The festival had gone on for several days and he'd opted not to wash for the whole of the festival. In his defence, he explained that there were very long lines for the few shower facilities available. When he arrived home from the festival, his mother refused to let him indoors. His smelly, unwashed state made him unfit for her presence. He was only allowed in the house once his mother had hosed him down in the backyard. And it's like that with us and God. We're not sweet-smelling people. We're begrimed with wrongdoing. We're not fit to enter the purity of God's presence. We can't live with him forever unless we've been hosed down. The only way in is through the extraordinary cleansing power of the cross. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So this washing that happens on the night before Jesus' crucifixion is a visual aid showing the purpose of his sacrificial death on the following day. And once we see it in that light, several features of the foot washing help us meditate on the cross. First, foot washing was an unpleasant thing to do. Now, the cross was vastly more unpleasant, but the disagreeableness of foot washing does point forward in a small way to the horribleness of the cross. The disciples would have been walking in sandals on unpaved roads, so their feet would not only have been sweaty and smelly, but also dirty. No doubt Jesus had to get up close to blisters and athlete's foot and lumpy, discoloured toenails. And he had to do that to get their feet clean. Similarly, when he was crucified. On that day of his crucifixion, Jesus had to get up close to the Roman whipping post. He had to get up close to the crown of thorns thrust on his head. And then the iron nails hammered through his hands and feet. It was horrible, horrible work to undertake. But Jesus had to do it to wash away our unrighteousness. It was the only way to make us clean. Washing his disciples' feet was also a humbling thing for Jesus to do. Verse 4 says, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That word outer 
isn't in the original. The original says he laid aside his garments. Presumably he took his clothes off because he didn't want them to be splashed with dirty water. And that explains why he tied the towel around his waist. Otherwise he would have been naked. Meanwhile, all his disciples remained fully clothed. That was a humbling position for Jesus to be in. His near nakedness while he washed his disciples' feet pointed forward to his nakedness on the cross. People were crucified without clothes. The humbling shame of nakedness was part of the punishment. But foot washing wasn't just unpleasant and humbling, it was also degrading. It lowered the social status of the person who did it. In the ancient world, the people who washed other people's feet were the slaves. And that socially degrading aspect of foot washing is another thing that points forward to the cross because the work Jesus volunteered to accomplish there was the work of a slave. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus made himself nothing taking the form of a slave and being found in appearance as a man he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross meditating on those different aspects of foot washing and their connection to the cross helps us grasp something of what jesus went through so that we could be clean it's good to slow down and dwell on the extent of Jesus' love. Verse 1 says of Jesus, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And Bible commentators point out that those words in the original language have a double meaning. John is saying that Jesus loved the disciples to the very end of his time with them. That's the first meaning. But he's also saying he loved them to the uttermost. When he went to his death, that horrible, shameful, degrading death, he loved to the very limits of love. Most of those listening this morning will have already come to Jesus for the cleansing from sin that he offers at the cost of his own life. If you haven't, you need to know how in practice to receive this cleansing. In verse 10, Jesus tells his disciples, you are clean. And later he expands on that. He says in chapter 15, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You are clean. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. We receive the cleansing Jesus offers by believing his word, putting our trust in his promises. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, did not believe the good news about Jesus. He rejected Jesus' message. That's why in verse 10, Jesus says, you are clean, but not every one of you. He's thinking of Judas. The example of Judas shows us that the cleansing Jesus offers isn't automatically applied to everyone in the world. It has to be personally received. And we receive it by believing the good news. If you're listening today as someone who hasn't yet claimed Jesus' cleansing for yourself, I hope you're experiencing even now the stirrings of faith 
there's a way to be clean from all sin, from all of the moral dirtiness that clings to us. Jesus will wash it all away from you if you put your trust in this good news. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our uncleanness upon himself so that we could be clean forever. But as I've said, that cleansing isn't applied automatically. It must be claimed through faith. So if you've never claimed that cleansing, pray to Jesus. Say to him, Lord, I believe you can make dirty people truly clean. Please do that for me. That's a prayer you could pray today, even during this sermon. Lord, make me clean. Those of us who have already claimed this cleansing can rejoice in it afresh as we see how it meets our need. And as we see how Jesus loved us to the uttermost extent. But we can also learn from this passage about the place of confession in the Christian life. Take a look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Remember, Jesus is talking symbolically. Here in verse 10, he speaks of the complete cleansing the disciples have received through their faith. And yet he also makes room for ongoing cleansing. The one who has bathed, he says, does not need to wash except for his feet. The ESV Study Bible explains it like this. Those who have been washed through Jesus once for all death also need daily cleansing of their sins, symbolised by their frequent need to wash their feet." End quote. In other words, just as a clean person in ancient Israel would quickly find, oh no, their feet have picked up dirt and need a wash. So in the Christian life, even though we're spiritually clean, we find day by day, oh no, we're guilty of sin, which should be confessed to God for his forgiveness. Listen to these verses from 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We need that foot washing. So we're completely clean, as Jesus says in verse 10, and yet, we need the spiritual foot washing of confession. It's one of those both and things that often pop up in the Bible. Both this and that are true. It's time for us to move on to the second of the two unavoidable washings in this Bible passage. The first was the washing we must receive. The second is the washing we must give. The washing we must give. Jesus uses firm language in verses 14 and 15. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. He doesn't say, you know, it might be a nice idea for you to wash one another's feet. 
He doesn't say, may I recommend that you do as I have done to you. He says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You also should do just as I have done to you. That's the language of obligation. In case the disciples haven't got the message, Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, Jesus is talking about how his disciples should interact with one another. He has the Christian community in view. And so this obligation is a community obligation. There are other obligations in the Christian life that take us outside the community of faith to serve unbelievers. But here in John 13, it's our fellow disciples who are in view. We're to wash one another's feet. Those cleansed by Jesus' sacrificial service serve one another sacrificially. That's the life we've been saved into. This is one of those Bible passages that teaches that Christians are saved to serve. We're forgiven to follow. And part of following Jesus is following his example. We saw earlier that the washing in this passage symbolizes the spiritual cleansing offered through the crucifixion. But Jesus was also meeting a genuine need when he washed his disciples' feet. They were gathered for the annual Passover meal, a sacred occasion. It would have spoiled things for everyone if they'd all had dirty feet throughout the evening. Jesus was meeting a real need. And when he calls us to do as he did, he's calling us to meet the needs of our fellow believers. Sometimes that may mean literally washing the feet of our fellow believers. But most Bible commentators think that when Jesus tells us to wash one another's feet, he means we should serve our fellow believers in accordance with their needs. If you said to me, Bernard, I'd like to wash your feet, I'd probably say, thank you for the kind offer, but that's not something I need. If we want to meet the needs of our fellow Christians, we'll have to think carefully about what those needs might be. Perhaps someone has a practical need. They can't pay their rent this month. Washing that person's feet may mean quietly telling a church council member about the rent difficulty so that we can offer assistance from our church hardship fund. Or perhaps someone in the church is moving apartment. That's something that happens very frequently in New York, and it's an opportunity to wash one another's feet by carrying boxes to their moving truck. During this time when we're not meeting in person at the triad, maybe you could reach out to a church friend with a text or a phone call. Or if you and that church friend are comfortable meeting up in person, then offering them the warmth of Christian fellowship over a coffee could be the foot washing they need. Once we're gathering again in person at the triad, God willing, that weekly church meeting provides lots of opportunities for foot washing. Whenever someone reads the first Bible reading or leads the prayers or greets people at the door or engages a newcomer in friendly conversation, they're washing feet by meeting 
real needs in our community. And there are other examples I, I could also have mentioned. We may have to step outside our comfort zone to assist our brothers and sisters in Christ. Serving others is by definition something done mainly for their benefit, not for our own benefit. When serving does take us out of our comfort zone, we'll need to remember the example we're following. Washing the feet of 12 men in the ancient Middle East was an unpleasant task. Jesus did it anyway, out of love for his friends. A moment ago, I said that serving others is something that is done for their benefit. And yet it does produce a kind of positive feedback loop where we serve others and then we find they serve us. In 1 Kings chapter 12, King Rehoboam's wise counsellors say to him, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them, they will always be your servants. It's a positive feedback loop. The person who's always take, take, take will find that a time comes when someone says to them, sorry, you'll have to do that yourself. If on the other hand, you're actively washing other people's feet, you'll find along the way that they start meeting your needs. And this positive feedback loop might be part of what Jesus means in verse 17 when he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. As we close, it's worth noting that Jesus didn't wash his disciples' feet because he was powerless. On the contrary, verse 3 says Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He was God's son. He was the most powerful human who has ever lived in this world. But instead of using his power to get other people to do things for him, he used his powerful position to do things for others. He stooped down and washed feet. Then a day later, he stretched out his hands on the cross and washed souls. We've been saved by that sacrificial service for sacrificial service. And so the question I want to leave you with is this. How can you use your power to serve your fellow disciples? Or putting it differently, how is it in your power to serve your fellow disciples by meeting their needs? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thrilled to see the love that Jesus has for us. He loved us to the uttermost when he went to his death on the cross. We give you thanks for his love. We give you thanks for what he achieved through the cross, our full cleansing. Show us, Heavenly Father, how it is in our power to serve our fellow disciples by meeting their needs. 
And we pray, Father, that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to serve in those ways, even when it takes us out of our comfort zone. We look to you for the strength that we will need. Remembering your promise, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.